And we're back. Welcome to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. This is also Mike in the host chair once more. As Mike won and Mom won, they are recovering. They thank you for all the well wishes. They hope to return soon to the movies with me, and certainly Mike hopes to return to Mike, Mike, and Oscar. Uh, but I do know he's a bit jealous today, Nick. He's a bit jealous uh, <laughs> that you're here and he's not, because Mike and I, we both love to do these historical deep dives, these these studies that look back in the past, especially when it revolves around the best picture category, and you really are the perfect guest for that. So not a solo show today. I have Nick from Gold Standard, the Oscars podcast. You're a radio pro. You're from Milan, Italy. Correct. You're currently uh, in Milan, Italy, and certainly the Oscars history expert I need on this one. So Nick, welcome. Oh, uh, Mike, thank you so, so much for having me on. It's such an honor and a pleasure. You know, it was a joy to have you on uh, on Gold Standard. It's just an honor and a joy to be with you today. I, uh, I'm really, really been looking forward to this one. Yeah, we had to do this. I, I sung your praises a few episodes back as I really did have a wonderful time guesting on Gold Standard for your episode 49 on Rocky, uh, Best Picture winner of the 49th Academy Award. So hopefully that's a hint uh, on what you do. But please, you know, Nick, tell our fans, you know, what the mission of your podcast is over at Gold Standard. Well, basically what we're doing is we're literally going through all the best picture winners in chronological order. We started way back with, in 1927 with Wings and they're basically moving our way up. So yes, now we've covered about uh, 51 years, we around 51 years of movie history, which is crazy in under two years because we've only been around for shy of two years. Next month, we're going to be celebrating our second anniversary, but all three of us are pretty seasoned podcasters from other podcasts. And you know, I was lucky enough to be able to get to Rachel and Zan for this project and we're really having a great time just going through the history I mean I know there are other podcasts out there that do it kind of in a random way but mm. I don't think you get the full-blown experience if you don't go through it chronologically to literally see the evolution of cinema not to mention I think also the rise and even fall of actors directors and what have you so it's uh, and of course trends which come and mm. go so it's very very fascinating I think to approach this way and we're just having a blast doing it yeah, there's nothing half blown about the experience over there at Gold Standard. You guys do yes. deep dives like I've never seen before, like four hour podcasts. It is something else. And I, I got to say, when I went into your Rocky episode, I was skeptical. I didn't know if the roundtable discussion format could work on me, per se. I liked listening to your show, which is why I did it for certain. And I've been in, I've been having a great time, you know, going uh, through the back catalog and catching up. But I had such a cathartic discussion with you, with Zan, with Rachel, and the takes I came in with, the opinions I started with, especially on a movie like Rocky that I grew up with, that I grew up loving in, in a certain very specific way. I walked out of that podcast questioning everything, changing everything. And it was it was something that I, where I adapted, where I went off script, where I found myself enhancing my argument as we went, because you guys were convincing me of your points. I mean, you're nailing them home. It really was quite the experience, uh, certainly a full-blown experience here in this roundtable discussion, where I just think you guys have a, such a unique chemistry, the trio of you, and it's almost like this phenomena of a mind meld 
by the end of each one of these episodes. So what do you think of your format? How, how did you kind of come up with this format going in? Why do you think it works so well for best pictures like that? Well, that's a very tough question. I mean, you and I are, are both sports fans, and mm. um, you know, and I know that, and I know that, of course, you know, you are also very heavy into the the whole sports stuff. I kind of approach it almost from a coach, if you will, because when I was um, shopping around this project, the first two people that immediately came to mind were Rachel and Zan, because I was mm -hmm. kind of like uh, doing playing the talent scout, which is something I love to do. It's like one of the few <laughs> times where I'm privileged enough to do that. And so I contacted them and I, cause I, they host their own shows as well. And they're fabulous. And I really like their experience and how well, how well they speak and how they express their points. So I thought to myself, since we're all used to kind of almost hosting our own shows, it's kind of like having, you know, three prima donnas in the room. So in order mm -hmm. to kind of appease everybody's egos, if you will, mine's probably the biggest of them all. So I'm, I'm going <laughs> to say that now because Zan and Rachel are great. But um, and so I think the best way is just to do that, because I think everybody's able to bring different opinions to the same movie. What I think is fabulous about it is, like you said, it can be a double edged sword where you might end up being repetitive if you come from you know, similar backgrounds. The good thing is, I think, coming from diverse mm. backgrounds, me being European, them being American, and also having different tastes in, in film in general, you get mm. a very varied series of opinions. In fact, there are often times when the three of us do not agree. There are times, there are times when we all agree that, say, I know this picture, this movie deserved to win. There are others when Rachel might disagree, or I might disagree, or even when it comes to who won Best Picture, we all mm -hmm. might give three different answers. So I think that's why it works so well. And I think by tackling the characters, it allows you to literally talk about the movie as a whole. Because it's like literally bringing in everything, the main characters. And so you can hit those certain points of this guy does this, this, and this, or this, this gal does this, this, and this. And, and I think it allows you one, to discuss the movie as a whole, and secondly, to not repeat yourself when you're discussing mm. a movie, because that can also be, I think, a big problem when reviewing a film, is you can bring back the same point over and over again, and maybe to the listeners, it might seem a little bit repetitive. Now, you guys have character studies, something Mike and I have done, you know, in, in bits and pieces, one, up, you know, one short episode going into the next with the Joker character study, or the James Bond character, something a study that we do in an off-season maybe, but, you know, you guys have four or five character studies in the one episode that goes a couple hours in many a case and they build on each other and and they and I I was shocked I was shocked that I had so much to say on the movie and I was shocked that everyone had, like we all it just naturally flowed so well so I really got to I got to shout out your format and I I got to shout out your show there uh for basically putting me under hypnosis about a movie that I thought I knew and now I know so much differently so I, I'm really happy to have you here today because like I want to compare and contrast best picture winners from the past with those of today. It is it is strange because Mike and I bring up all these pundits all the time on our show that are covering the Oscars like us, and they have a lot of these tropes down pat, right? They understand them. And they're, they're going on history and kind of when they grew up and when they cut their teeth as pundits, a lot of these things were happening and some of them are outdated and some of them are not. But I was hoping that maybe we could like find the historical basis for some of these today. So I have, as I told you in a pre-show, I did some studies, some cursory studies, some half-assed studies, you know, some 
you know, literal rabbit holes the last few days where just trying to come up with flurries of information for you that I'm hoping we could just kind of unravel and unpack. So I, I think I think it's you're primed and ready because you just came from the 1970s, which is perhaps you know the decade of some of the you know the most influential masterpieces, especially on my film studying life. Uh, so I, I guess as one more appetizer, what is like a 1970s film? A 1970s film. What was your favorite of this group? Perhaps with the Godfather's French Connection, Cuckoo's Nest, Annie Hall, Deer Hunter. You got Kramer versus Kramer still to come. Did you have a favorite deep dive there? Well, I have to say it's a pretty stacked decade. There is to be said and very varied decade at that. I mean, Mm. I would probably say instinctually, I would say the two Godfathers because those movies have meant a lot to me, not just because I'm Italian, but uh, also because it's the fact that, I mean, such an array of talent right there. And one thing that I love about doing this, um, this kind of format of podcast is seeing stars being born. I mean, with Godfather One, where we literally see Al Pacino come into his own, where you, you literally see a star being born before your eyes. It's an amazing experience, no matter how many years have gone by. But I think also the themes and just it's one of those, I wouldn't say absolutely perfect movies, but it's very, very near perfect. The first Godfather, just mm. because of, of the scope, just how well it's directed, the music and how iconic it is and how... And I think it holds up so well to this day. So I would probably say Godfather is my goat of uh, of uh, the seventies, most likely. Um, in fact, funnily enough, on our podcast, whenever we end the, the decade, we have a goat and donkey segment where we say which is the goat and which is the donkey. And uh, so I, I would definitely say it's it's tough, but I think I would probably say that Godfather is my goat of the seventies. And it really broke my heart a little, especially when Rachel was having trouble with, you know, the Michael Corleone character. And she 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 does come around. She does have an arc with the character between the two films and the saga of it all. And it's great to see you. You know, you're doing a a great job as the uh, as the voice in in favor of, of these masterpieces. I agree. But I wondered if it was just a guy thing. If it was an Italian man thing, like I've been addicted to the Godfather saga forever. I'm even watching the offer right now and loving it when it's not a good show, by the way, if you're watching the offer, (laughs) you know what I mean? On Paramount plus not a good show, but addictive and fun to to fun to watch. And, And certainly those were awesome episodes on gold standard. So, all right, let's, Let's go a little further back, and I, I'm I'm jogging your brain a little bit by uh, going back, you know, maybe a year ago, year and a half ago to the 1940s, because Nick, we're at like a, a crux right now. We have streaming changing the industry in a way where the industry probably hasn't been changed to this level since the late 90, 1940s, when television became hugely popular. Because we did, we had some TVs during World War II, and then we had a TV in every household, 12 million households in the, in the late 40s, early 50s. So motion pictures had to reckon with that. They had to differentiate the entertainment of what we had in the movies. And guess what? The best pictures kind of represent that. We watch Mrs. Miniver and The Lost Weekend and Casablanca and the best years of our lives. These are 
mid-budget dramas. And for the most part, that's the type of the best picture we get in the 40s. You understand it's it's wartime. People aren't splurging on the big budgets for various re- reasons, but these are mid-budget, small-budget dramas. We move into the 50s and we get the greatest show on earth around the world in 80 days. Ben-Hur, a humongous blockbuster. And there's just no question the budgets go sky high and entertainment's must become distinguishable because you got to get butts and seat again, seats again, because they could just sit down at home and watch something dramatic. You got to differentiate. You got to give them spectacle theme park movies, if you will. And this happened in the fifties. Well, guess what? It's happening now. So I'll have a second part of this question that discusses the now, but can you maybe take us back to that industry shift back in the, you know, the, the post world war two era there, do you, do you think, or do you remember how this affected Oscar's best pictures that kind of, that you were studying uh, for those 20 episodes? Well, I think you said it best because like you said, television was definitely a force to reckon with at this point. So obviously Hollywood wanted to still be the biggest game in town. And I think that's very much what they decided to do. Hence, I think the birth of the epic movie, hence, I think also the fact of color, Because how do you do something even bigger? Because most of TV shows at the time were in black and white. Mm. And of course, here we have not Technicolor just yet, but colored movies coming in. I think of Mm. even An American in Paris, something of such a huge scope of a musical for for the movie theater. Or even I think the certain themes that were addressed, which might not have been addressed on TV at the time. So you mm. think of you mentioned the lost weekend, alcoholism, or for example, um, you know, or even things that um, were important to the people, like the circus, uh, like you mentioned, or it was just I think very grandiose things, or the the, the concept of suicide with the apartment, or yeah. in, also so I think it was a mixture of we have to go big or go home. So it's one we do the big epics and the color. Secondly, we focus on relatability. And I think this will actually be a big theme in today's episode, which is relatability. And I think that's probably, and as we go through this, uh, through this conversation, I think that's, that's what plays, I think, in most with the audiences, you have to relate to your audience. So you go with stuff that either enjoyed when they were kids. So like the circus or themes that might've touched them at some point, like suicide, alcoholism, loneliness, and what have you. So I think that is what they did in order to, try and defeat the chattering cyclops that was television. <laughs> and oh, thank you for bringing my meandering question into focus there so well. No and, and my co-host does this for me and I and you just did that for me uh, as well there. But uh, so we we have this perhaps happening again. I would say at least in terms of the scale and the scope of Hollywood Oscars potential contenders, right? And I say that because I think we've gone on a stretch of Nomadland, Coda, Parasite, Moonlight, indie films to mid to small budget best picture winners. And I think that's about to change, but I'm not so sure. We have a couple vying for it this year. Obviously, we got, you know, the Avatar sequels and the Dune sequels coming up in the next few years. We got Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, which is probably a $100 million budget there. Uh, We also got David O. Russell's Amsterdam, Damien Chazelle's Babylon, and, of course, Martin Scorsese's Killer of the Flower Moon uh, this particular year. So where are you standing right now? Do you feel like perhaps 
this is like the late 40s about to change into the 50s these 2020s heading into the latter part of this decade because they're reckoning with streaming or am i ignoring what this particular academy's recent track record has been and maybe you're thinking not yet it's not going to move there yet uh and we'll still have something smaller because there's a i mean i could list another you know a huge I mean, never mind. What just one it can? Triangle of Sadness, Decision to Leave. I mean, we could have an international film come back with a vengeance this year, like a broker. We could have a smaller movie. We can have an international movie take Best Picture this year, and we could continue the trend. Where do you think it's going as an industry? And certain, certainly, where do you think the Academy is leaning? Well, I think gradually that will probably be the course that we're on, as in, and we've seen this from decade to decade that it will almost be like a roller coaster ride where you might start with the more simple down to earth stories go into the big epics go into the more the quieter more intimate stories then go back to the big epics and then down again and i think that's very much what we're seeing it's literally a cycle and i think mm -hmm. we're coming towards the next cycle where we're doing the intimate stories the relatable stories etc and then i think we might go to what might be for example what was big in the 90s so the big mm. story epics like the brave hearts or the gladiators or what have you but maybe not those kind of characters i mean it, it could have been the superhero movie maybe it might be the time when the superhero movie starts getting recognized as an mm -hmm. art form by the academy this is me being incredibly optimistic folks i mean i'm being incredibly incredibly optimistic because i'm a huge superhero movie fan and i've been very much a fighter for superhero movies being recognized heck i host a, a podcast on superhero movies that should tell you but um that said i think it might be that though at the same time if you go and look at what was recognized at can you have once again these very uh, what is very much in the zeitgeist and what is very much, I think, on people's minds. So satire on mm. shows like, say, Love Island, for example, killing <laughs> of sex workers in Iran, baby yeah. boxes, teenage homosexuality. And that is also a big thing now in the States, too, with the whole don't say gay thing in Florida. Sure, sure, so that absolutely. could probably also play to those audiences. So those might be the top. And of course, there's COVID. So you might yeah. even have a very intimate, tragic story about COVID. So... I don't think we're ready just yet for that moment, but I think we're going towards the, that cycle, if you will. And that's a perfect segue into my next question, because I think it's, I think it's completely impossible to avoid the politicization of anything now. And, and I think my co-host agrees with me on this, Correct. but certainly uh, in the best picture category, we have seen, Best pictures make statements, tackle subject matter that is profound and, and certainly timely in the moment, right? I keep reading this about best pictures that maybe the modern academy should not get on the soapbox and should not make the statement film. The problem with that is it becomes very insensitive to underrepresentation and and such a long lag time for so many groups to be finally recognized and it, it it gets it gets me aggravated it certainly puts me on edge so i'm kind of going to attack this question in the next in the next next segment with with a more war movie edge but do you think that when a statement film wins do you think there is this Cinderella factor where you get this thrilling narrative 
and everybody feels good for feels good for that group at times or are you kind of more thinking to where i am do you think that generalization sometimes diminishes because I, I i tend to think like this can diminish the win in some ways but here's here's one fact factor that seems to be the case no matter what it seems like the indies of today deal directly with the statement pictures and the biggies are much less courageous. They they'll go like with these milk toast statements. They'll give, you know, this kumbaya stuff. And you kind of even see that with something like the shape of water or green book in comparison to, you know, moonlight or, uh, or, or even coda. Like these have these fiery statements. They're in your face about it. I love it. Indie film. I love you for doing that sometimes. And then, you know, other, but green books like, yeah, all right, racism's bad. It's wrong. But we take it from this old white guy perspective. And it's very bland, in my opinion, even though I like green book for a certain level. But so what do you think about statement best pictures? And am I, am I making any sense? Oh, again, an, another meandering question. <laughs> well, you're, no, no, you're definitely making sense. And I totally agree with you. I mean, case in point, look at way back when, when Driving Miss Daisy won. I yeah. get that you're trying to, to push forward the idea that racism is bad. You shouldn't, you shouldn't uh, ignore it and stuff. But the way they did, did it, I think it was already kind of a sign of what the Academy tends to do when it comes to tackling big themes. Aside from, you know, great things like 12 Years a Slave, which I think very much hammers the, the message forward. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, I think Hollywood has always been incredibly dare I say, concerned or maybe a little bit afraid of dipping their toe and going the extra mile than an indie movie would. Because I guess you have big studios tied to your films like, oh, we don't want to upset those people or we don't want to upset these people. So the results sometimes can almost be like you're pandering to a certain group of people. I think there are movies where you are able, where they are successful Case in point, Schindler's List, I think, was incredibly successful in portraying, not only is it, is it I think, a masterpiece, but in portraying the plight of the Holocaust and everything that, 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 that surround that together with the story of Oscar Schindler. But mm -hmm. you do it in a way that you're not pandering to the, the victims of, the families of the victims of the Holocaust, or even Jews in general who suffer from anti-Semitism. It's not right. the whole poor, poor Jews thing. You're literally, you know, you're putting in perspective what the problem is and I think when it comes to for example racism or should we say anti-black sentiment even for example it Hollywood's always had a big problem with addressing that and doing it in the right way not to mention you have films where you do that but they don't get noticed think of do the right thing which was a fabulous sure. movie where yes. did that go think the color purple no it wasn't even wasn't even it got the nods but didn't win those braver movies or I think of even Mississippi Burning that was right. such a powerful movie. Yet it's almost like the Academy is afraid to say, we'll give you the golden statue because you did a great job. No, they want, I think, the more, like you said, milk toast version, because I think people are uncomfortable when it comes to, um, should we say, addressing certain things. It's the whole white guilt thing. I think that sometimes right. we have, it's like, oh, I don't want to feel bad because I'm white. And we don't want these poor white people to feel bad about themselves. And so it might be also a case of that too, I think. Yeah, driving Miss Daisy over Do the Right Thing and Green Book over Black Klansman and uh, If Beale Street Could Talk. Those kind of baffled me at the time, uh, uh, or at least the 
the the recent one and certainly in our one of our few retrospectives that Mike and I did was on the uh, screenplay category with with Spike Lee winning it there and it got us fear we were furious at that which is why Mike and I can't do retrospectives as often as you guys do you have mu- a much more I would say healthier look on history you can you can process it and it, and you you deal with that much better I think Mike and I I I get I get very frustrated with history at times and it it bothers me to the point where I just fly off the handle. And I think the Academy can react in the moment to some crises and they have done that in the past. And like we said, we've gotten some really cool best picture winners when that's happened, you know, off of Oscar. So white, we, we, we got some, some, a door open for the possibility of a moonlight a few years later. And this is just extremely important for the industry at large. And now it has ushered in a time of uh, the smaller film uh, winning and willing, winning in the immediate, I would say. Like, it's immediately important that a coda gets recognized. That, that, that's been such a journey for that underrepresented gr- group so it's, when they make a great movie, let's recognize it. If, if all things are equal, let's recognize, let's celebrate it. So I had no problem with Coda winning that year or Moonlight for that matter. But I, I do want to kind of tease this out a little further with war movies because you guys just covered one. You just covered Deer Hunter, which happened five years after Vietnam, which is a very long, fatiguing war for a hundred million reasons. And you know, in 1978, that production budget was fairly large, 15 million. Well, I mean, we'll see Hurt Locker win in 2009, same budget, 15 million, all those years later. So it's a very small war movie winning in the immediate because the, the wars on terror, the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war were still going on in that moment. I mean, the list goes on and on. When you look at, you know, World War II, you see call the action films like Casablanca, like I said, Mrs. Miniver. I mean, these are the, either the backdrop or the, you know, the direct uh, focus on the war. Those are happening for very small budgets and you don't really get the big budget World War II movies until, you know, 10 years, decades later uh, from here to eternity kind of happens. And that builds into the bridge on the river to Kwai sound of music, Patton, the budgets swell from there. So, I'm wondering if you think this is just going to be how Hollywood always handles it. Like we're going to have a $200 million pandemic movie in 2035, or we're going to have, or we're going to have a $2 million Bo Burnham pandemic movie that wins best picture next year. I don't know. Like somebody's going to make an indie, but we're not going to, we're going to keep dealing with our problems 10 years later in the best picture category. Is this something you found to be true throughout history in a way like, like I'm talking or is, am I looking at it askewed right now? No, no. Uh, I think you're very much on the money with that. And we have, as I said, seen it before when it comes to other such things that were major, major problems. I mean, I mentioned Schindler's list. The, the theme of the Holocaust was not mentioned for ages before, mm. before Schindler's list. I mean, you had movies like say Nuremberg, or, or Judgment at Nuremberg, pardon me, which uh, obviously happened way before then, but they never, should we say, took head on the concept of we have to make a Holocaust movie happen and we have to kind of make it happen when it's yeah. still fresh in people's minds. But also I think in general, yes, it's, it's very much that problem is 
Oscar seems to get to the thing a little on the late side. So I would not surprise me if we got a COVID movie, say, 10 years from now, because it's like, oh, we're not going to do it when, when things are still fresh, because we're ju we just don't roll that way. Let's make people feel happy and not give them those kind of movies. So I do think, uh, sadly, I think Oscar's going to continue to be a little bit late to the party when it comes to, to addressing certain things. I might realize, I mean, it depends. I think it also depends on if there's also a reshuffle within the, the members of the Academy. So you bring in younger people, because I think mm -hmm. there also needs to be, I mean, I'm not dissing people who, who deservedly are members of the Academy, but I think if you bring in fresher minds, you know, fresher, mm -hmm. you know, directors, actors, what have you, they might have their ear to the ground more than more seasoned members of the Academy. And I think that might actually help change things saying, guys, I think we maybe should start addressing this we should start addressing that. So I think it might also be a generational thing, to be honest. Yeah, I think I think I get frustrated with the Academy throughout the decades. And I just have this love-hate relationship with them. And I, I love them for the movies they give us. I just can hate them sometimes for the movies they pick and put above the others because it really is a time capsule. And, and Mike, my co-host often talks about it as like the movie of the year. And why can't we just pick the best movie in many cases? Why can't we just pick, you know, the 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 most well-made movie? And other pundits like Scott Feinberg, they they they've talked about it in such a way, but there's all these mitigating factors. The, the, how have they procrastinated on an issue for so many years? Did that issue get snubbed two years ago and then they get a makeup call? A couple of years later. Anyway, there's a lot of sour grapes being crushed well, right now in this one episode. But yeah, <laughs> if I may interject, you also mentioned Coda. That was also, I think, kind of trying to make up for a missed opportunity when Children of a Lesser God came out. That's a long, long makeup. And that's what I'm saying. Like some of these some of these uh, opportunities just haven't been there. And I was thrilled. Like last year, I mean, you know, I'm, the whole season, I'm like, just pick Coda. It's just pick Coda. This is an it's easy right decision, there. easy win. This is a great movie. It's fun. It's so necessary. We need this. We need this moment. And they did it. So I, you know, for all the trash I'm I'm talking right now, they did do the right thing uh, last year, in my opinion. Even though, yeah, the Power of the Dog was a strong film. I really. I guess I, I don't know if you enjoy the, the 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 power of the dog, but you you sense the power of the dog for sure uh, in those film studies. But look, I'm wondering I'm wondering if we can maybe shift this back towards like a people's choice Oscar, popular Oscar pick kind of deal because they're going against themselves, against the grain sometimes. Because we we've talked about the industry imperative to maybe not politicize it to the to the extent where you know, you're turning people off and maybe to be a little more generalized and blander. Right. I mean, that seems to work for these blockbusters. And I guess it comes at a price when you pick the issue of the moment movie in some cases, because a lot of times that comes at the expense of perhaps the big budget blockbuster. It, it becomes at the expense of the, you know, the, the movie that won 500 million at the box office in 1973. And I say one, because I do think, especially in the new Academy, the award that the Academy thinks is uh, already given is the money. Like Avengers Endgame won the money. 
So we don't need to give Avengers Endgame more Oscars than just, you know, the uh, the VFX award. But I, I don't know. I, I had it like a top three movie that year. I don't know how people didn't say that was one of the best few movies. Makes no sense to me. And maybe Top Gun's going to be that this year. But my co-host usually says that the box office is the prize uh, for some of these uh, uh, blockbusters. So I'm wondering if you've sensed this trend throughout history, because I think I think it's happened, especially in those 1970s. Well, I do think Steven Spielberg said it best when he talks about commercial backlash. And I think that that term is applicable to what is happening with these huge budget movies today, not getting Oscar gold. And even in the past, I mean, I think this will be a good segue also for for later too. You look at Jaws, you look at Star Wars, and of course, you look more recently at Avengers Endgame. And I think that's partly what it boils down to, as in everybody loves a winner, but nobody loves a winner, if you see what I'm saying. (laughs) It's, It's fascinating, but look, especially at that decade, The Exorcist, Jaws and and Star Wars, these blockbusters keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, really starting the blockbuster craze. And yes, you have like a cuckoo's nest, which was also a blockbuster in its own right. So I think the the 70s do really speak to the point here. I I would agree with you, like the Exorcist, Jaws, uh, then Star Wars, they kind of build, they build the blockbuster age that we're still living in, in many ways. And yes, we had the sting. We had Cuckoo's Nest. We had Annie Hall beat them. I'm wondering if you sensed kind of the bias against the blockbusters back then, or because you have studied these films and Cuckoo's Nest is an undeniably incredible film. Do you think like the sting and Cuckoo's Nest and Annie Hall, do you think they were just like, look, these are cultural touchstones at the time. I mean, you guys had a lot of praise for Annie Hall, despite the filmmaker, the art separating from the artist. And I get that. And it was such an influential film at the time, which we forget in hindsight, right? We just remember star Wars. So do you feel, do you feel like the, uh, the blockbusters, you know, how it plays out in history is different to how it played out in the time. These were more runaways at the time. Okay, well, here's what I will say when it comes to the cases Fanny Hall and Cuckoo's Nest as I take out my uh, lawyer's case here and, and make a case for these. Because <laughs> I think with Annie Hall winning Best Picture over Star Wars, I think as successful and revolutionary and influential it was back then and still is today, I think, for example, taking the Star Wars example, what it may have had against it is that between the aliens, the lightsabers and the force, it could have been seen as there was pure escapism. And that Mm. is not what Oscar will award, especially in a time of counterculture like the 70s. And I also think Annie Hall won for multiple reasons because of this, because firstly, it literally, like you were alluding to, subverted the romantic comedy and it was mm-hmm. also very original when it came to the filming techniques, from the split screen stuff to the animated sequences to breaking the fourth wall. And added to this, I think it's one of the first times you're literally taking on such a universal and relatable topics like love and relationships and everything those entail. But with the good, the bad and the ugly, you're not making a Frank Capra movie. You're literally taking on all the good and the bad that comes from relationships. And we know these themes are everlasting and are still felt mm-hmm. today. I think that is why Annie, Annie Hall 
one, it's as great one because one, it's as grounded in reality. And 99% of us have experienced at least one time or another what happens to those characters. While many of us have not been to space, have not fought aliens, <laughs> or have wielded a lightsaber as much as we'd love to. And I think when it comes to the sting, it's probably one of the most enjoyable, whimsical films to ever win Best Picture. I think for many, the Academy included, it's more of like a homage to the caper heist genre which had been, of course, very popular since the 60s. And I think it was a testament to the fact that popular movies are not just popcorn fare. I think The Sting was very much an exception there because it's also, it's not just you're shoving popcorn into your mouth while stuff is going on. It's actually a rather clever movie and rather convoluted too. And so I think it appeases popcorn consumers and critics, even though I think Cries and Whispers got shafted, but I'm totally mm -hmm, down with mm -hmm. The Sting winning. Mm -hmm. and, Cuck and Cuckoo's Nest, I think we have a movie which, literally is a love letter to counterculture. And it's incredibly poignant for the time. You have to put it in that context, I think, because you have the concept of the revolution versus the status quo, i.e. you have Mac versus Nurse Ratched, and the metaphor, I think, of the insane asylum for caging free thought and freedom of expression, which is very powerful stuff, and it will resonate with your audience. And mm. I think as amazing as, and fantastic as Jaws is, Let's remember also that at that point, Steven Spielberg is not the Steven Spielberg we know today. Right. He's still very much an unknown. And the Academy may have seen it as the best picture not is enough. And add to this, I mentioned before, I think it's also the concept of commercial backlash, which did come into play as well. I am so glad I asked that question because hindsight is not always 2020, especially for an Oscars pundit. And, you know, I cannot see the trees through the forest. Like like you can because you're so, you're in it you're in it uh, on a on a biweekly basis there so all right let's let's investigate kind of the question of genre with how these these best pictures are voted on year after year and kind of the sequence maybe because we we kind of did the budget and the blockbuster I, I want to go to scope and score, story scope eventually but. We did have late 70s picking Rocky, Annie Hall, Deer Hunter, and Kramer versus Kramer in succession. These are four vastly different films. And yes, I'm sure you can find commonalities to an extent. However, both in size and in genre, these are different story structures and four distinct uh, stories. So I'm wondering if this is like, you know, Scott Feinberg says, is this voting science, political science 101? Like our we pick our presidents here in America to everybody's detriment, you know, Bush to Obama to Trump to Biden. I mean, oh, my God, uh, it's, it's rough to be over here sometimes. Is this like, you know, we talked about sports, you know, you, you typically see uh, an organization, a team. You know, when they change coaches, if they went for a defensive coach, the, the previous regime, the next one will pick an offensive coach or they'll go an old wily vet. And then the next one will do a, a young up and comer, you know, making their coaching debut. Can this desire to, you know, to vote for something different each cycle? Is that a historical constant that you've seen from this academy in this instance, or like I keep circling back to this. Is it just the films? Cause I guess, you know, you can make an argument like these films are just great films. They won because they were great films because they struck, you know, a chord with the zeitgeist, but I'm trying to pry open some of these trends, I guess. Well, no, I think uh, once again, it's um, it, it varies. I think there are some cases where it's literally, that movie is just so much better than the rest. It's head and shoulders for us, the Academy. We have yeah. to give it to this, to this particular movie. 
Or I think, like you said, it is. it might also be the fact of, we did you guys already. We're going to do something else this year, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. kind of thing. I mean, it makes me think of, I mean, going even further back of um, an American in Paris winning and singing in the rain, getting nothing. When many right. people, many people contend that singing in the rain is the masterpiece when mm. it comes to Gene Kelly. American in Paris is a very, very uh, how could, ambitious movie. It's a very ambitious movie. Mm-hmm. But you, you compare the two, once again, in hindsight, there is no contest that Singing in the Rain should have won Best Picture and they could have passed over an American in Paris. So I think it's, all, it's, I think it's a mixture of many things. It's like you think of the, great, the, the greatest show on earth. See, Cecil B. DeMille at this point is kind of on his last legs. And you're like, the guy might die on us. We have to let him win because he's probably going to die the next year. <laughs> and he won't make the Ten Commandments. Had they mm-hmm. been patient, they could have maybe said, screw this old circus game. Let's give it to Moses with a six pack. So, mm. I mean, <clears throat> and, 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 and between the two movies, I actually think the Ten Commandments deserved it way more than the greatest show on earth. But mm-hmm. um, so I think it's also that it's because let's remember the Academy is also a group of buddies at the end of the day. A lot of people are yeah. friends among the Academy. So like, you know, my buddy uh, Gene Kelly is doing so, so well. We're going to help you out, buddy. Don't worry. We love that movie, man. We're going to let you win. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not. I'm, I know it sounds very cynical, but um, it might. But I'm not. I wouldn't be surprised if sometimes it happens like that. So it right. could also be that or this chap, we don't know what he's going to do next. Let's give it to him now while he's hot. You think of um, Deer Hunter. Michael mm-hmm. Cimino is lucky he won that year because after that, he ended up doing one bomb after another. Right. He did, I believe, I would think he did Heaven's Gate Heaven's after Gate. that movie. And it, and it was garbage in the sense that it literally went. And after that, Chimino was like, I can't do movies anymore. So mm. they got him at the right moment. So it's also, I think, a moment of that saying, ooh, let's give it to that. Or can't you go to Dances with Wolves. Kevin Costner directing. Why not? Let's give him the, let's let him win, you know? <laughs> Even though it's not particularly accurate when it comes to Native Americans. Who cares? It, Kevin, welcome to the director's world, buddy. Here's yeah. your gold, you know? Yeah, who directed Cats again? Yeah, no, I'm. I hear you. <laughs> I see what that, I'm that saying. Fascinating answer, and I doubt so true. I, you know, I'll continue the discussion in a way, kind of the vacillation of up and down endings, or kind of discussing, you know, the the tragedies, comedies, in a in a platonic or in the sense of Plato, not in terms of laughing or or crying, but literally in terms of up and down endings, I think the Academy kind of keeps us guessing. And and this is is certainly something that fluctuates. I mean, you have long stretches in the fifties and sixties where uh, you have as many up endings as down endings, uppers and downers, it goes, it, it vacillates. And then you have certain stretches, I would say, and you hinted at this already, like post Vietnam, you have all kinds of shades of gray. Like you have bittersweet movies and I'm not going to, I'm not going to spoil any right now, but let's just say from after Vietnam, there's one after another where, you know, you can't get as get that high. You can't get that low. You're just, you're, you're really in the experience in terms of the late eighties, we get into the excess of the eighties, the early nineties. We got a string uh, from rain man to gump, I mean, these are happier films. These are, these are triumphant endings. I guess I, you know, spoiled them a little bit, but it's people fine. like triumphant, happy films anyway. So that, that's kind of a, they're not an issue to spoil them, I would say. But look at the Academy has these moods and the moods, I, I would say sometimes they, you know, coincide 
with the history of the country, our country and the history of, uh, you know, what's going on in terms of the wars and whatnot. Is this upper and downer question just again, voting science 101 that's always going to happen? Or do you think or do you think like it's it's more of a, a like a mood, you know, specific thing? I think it's, it could be a bit of both. I mean, it's either very kind of Picasso-esque. So I'm in my blue period. I'm in my red period or whatever. Or <laughs> certain things are just hot at the moment. Or like you said, it could be almost, almost very much be like, this, like the, the stock market. As in mm. people are feeling good. It's a great decade. You know, the economy is booming. Let's give them some, some, some stuff that goes along with that. Or these are serious <laughs> times. Let's give them stuff that will have them crying or stuff like that, or that will, you know, make them feel validated because like we're in this together, you know, you're not alone kind of thing. So I think it's, I think once again, that's why I said it's all about, I think, relatability and in tapping into your audience. I think it should be the Academy's, I think, mission to be able to tap into the almost global feeling in general of, the movie we're going to give best picture to should be the movie that almost represents the largest part of the world possible. What, I mean, one, of course, you do have to kind of, um, kind of fix up certain mistakes you've made, i.e. like you were saying, certain groups of people who've been underrepresented get the representation. But I think for the most part, the best picture should literally be, it should bring us all together as movie lovers, as in mm. this is a movie that I'm Italian, you're American, the other chap's British, the one ones that's Indian, we, hmm. It's something we can get behind. It's almost like to use, it's almost like our William Wallace, somebody who's literally holding the flag for us that we're getting behind because this is a sum up almost of the human condition or what makes us, you know, what, uh, uh, why we're common as humans, what we, right. regardless of where we come from or what our creed or our race or our color. Because it's not, it's not as easy of just of saying, you know, Mike and I kind of made this mistake when we started our podcast of just pick the best movie already. Pick the best. It's subjective. It's so subjective. It's of so course, it's art here. Subjective. Of course. So I think what Mike and I, when we look back at history and we're like, you're in it right now. And I don't, I can't remember some of these scenarios and I obviously I don't know the ins and outs of all of these races, kind of how we study it now where, where like a nomad land was winning wall to wall. There was no doubt nomad land was going to win. I think that was the case for the Titanic. I think, or Titanic. I think that was the case for the return of the King Lord of the Rings film. I think that was the case for West side story, but maybe hindsight's 2020 on there for me. I'm not sure because it was such an over the top winner. Silence of the Lambs wound up being a huge winner, but you know, that was coming from very far away on the calendar, February through to the Oscars. Do you notice some of these runaway winners throughout your studies of history? Are these, are these undeniable films? Do they stick out? I mean, is something like the Godfather, a runaway back in 1972 is, I I mean, Rocky's not a runaway at one kind of like in the last minute, right? The one we studied. So how often do you know, you guys have a race segment at the end of every episode. How often can you get that sense in hindsight, kind of looking back? You know, it's very, very tough. I mean, one wishes at that point that one had a TARDIS and would be able to go back in time to actually see and be a part of the the film-going audience. We often try, at least I do, to put ourselves in the mindset of what was going on at that time. And I try to put myself, you know, saying The Godfather, try to put myself in the mindset of, I'm a chap in the 70s. Is this, um, 
am I going to say, wow, this movie is like, I totally can get behind it. Or is it because, yeah. you know, so I think for the most part, the, the, the one, the films that did win aside from quite a few flubs here and there, but I think for the most part, they did capture what the general public for them. I mean, I think, Funny enough, I think Oscar was more in tune with the general public way back when than, than, as, mm. than as things went on. I mean, uh, or maybe it was also appeasement in the sense that there were certain moments where, like we have to kind of make these people happy. I kind of think of this mm. movie because if not, they'll be chasing us with pitchforks and torches. So I think, <laughs> I think for the most part, yes. I mean, I think of, as I said, Annie Hall, I can totally see why, because in that period, not only the costumes and the themes and everything else, or say Cuckoo's Nest, like I said, counterculture. You're very much selling your movie to that crowd from that group because that's what they're going through. One right. could almost make the argument, I'm not saying that it should have won, one could almost make the argument that Don't Look Up could have been the Best Picture winner for that reason because it's stuff that we have gone through as a group of humans on this planet. Sure, sure. But at the same time, yeah, there's some problems there quality-wise and, and such, so I get why <laughs> it didn't win. But should we say if you followed that mold, you would probably have to give it to don't look up, you know, when it came to, to that. So I think it, it, it's, there's so many variables. How good is the movie? How relatable is it? And everything. So I think it's, as you said, it's an art form. So it's hard, I think, to constantly make a good movie that has its finger on the pulse at the same time. And it's also pre-preferential balloting. It's pre, oh, yeah. and, and they vacillate through, eras where they have 10 nominees early on and then they have five nominees for so long and that that, that certainly changes the calculus uh down the line and and obviously the voting body is vastly different now vastly more international now and perhaps there are these pockets or clicks that are picking certain films and get behind certain films and then in a close race they could they can overcome so i guess i guess my final question and you kind of already intimated added it is on the flip side of the runaway, you have the Cinderella, you have the Rockies and the Tom Joneses, which I, th again, I think in hindsight, at least I'm guessing a Tom Jones was probably a, su a surprise, even though it might've been the artist of the day, because, you know, the artist was such a breath of fresh air, such a, like a cinephile's wet dream, hearkening back to the, you know, the silent film era. How do you think, novelty and just sheer craft plays on you know this elite level of voter because this is the elite of the elite of the business in many ways do you think like a guerrilla film like rocky i mean they made they made an epic out of you know a nine hundred sixty thousand dollar budget uh we we have like a nomad land that taps it perfectly into the pandemic sentiment. I would say, I'm going to think of Fern in that van when I think of the pandemic and maybe that's not my pandemic. That wasn't my experience, but I'm going to think of being in a van for whatever reason, when I think back to the pandemic, because I was doing this show. So I guess bringing all of our stuff together, do you get a sense of the Cinderella's maybe can you glean, you know, throughout your studies of those films that uh, were the little engines that could in a way. I definitely think so. I think just like uh, I mentioned the whole thing of there being a, a backlash, but a commercial backlash, I think it, it, the, the pendulum swings in the opposite direction as well. I mean, because uh, I and, and I think we actually mentioned this when we did our review of Rocky, is that everybody mm -hmm. loves an underdog. So there mm -hmm. are that cases when before you get too big for your boots, we dig this guy <laughs> because he's still he's a scrapper and everything else. So I think when those films win, it is the fact of maybe 
playing into the academy mentality of the public likes an underdog, we like an underdog, so we will give the the, the prize to the, the little engine that could kind of concept. I agree with you. I mean, and uh, it, it, when, but at the same time, that plays in the in the uh, in, in the same way I think with modern day, in the sense that the blockbusters are not going to win Best Picture because mm-hmm. you know you you've you've got your prize already. You know, you've got your billions and billions of dollars. Why do we have to add Oscar gold to it? So. It, it varies with the times. I think there was a time maybe when it was more the underdog, but and I think now it's more of we might give it to the underdog because we kind of don't want to give it to that uh, to that huge blockbuster, i.e. Avengers Endgame or, or other such films. I really appreciate this episode today because it kind of, you know, you, you confirm some things for me and you kind of crystallize, you refocus some things that I was very, you know, messy out in terms of kind of laying out here today. And I, I do really appreciate it. I'm, I, I think it was a bit of a mind meld of our own, uh, mm-hmm. Nick. And I, I just really, uh, I, I, I'm really grateful that you came on. Do us a favor, you know, pitch some films that you're really looking forward to that you're about to cover in the 1980s. I mean, we have you know, I got the whole list there of best picture winners. Uh, what, what do you really, uh, you, you can't wait to sink your teeth into? Oh, I definitely think Amadeus is probably one of my all time favorites because oh, good. I mean, I, I guess being a DJ and being a, you know, a once a independent musician myself, I can very much buy the story that is being portrayed. And not to mention, <laughs> it's such a fantastic, fantastic film and it's so quotable. So um, I think, I, I think I'd probably have to say, yeah. Uh, Amadeus is the one I'm looking forward to the most when it comes to the 80s. Uh, I can't wait for that episode of the Gold Standard. Uh, Nick, please, you know, on the outro here, remind our listeners, you know, where they can find you, where they can follow you on social media. Well, first off, Mike, I wanted to thank you so, so much. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. it was a joy. It was a pleasure and honor. You are a fantastic host. You and Mike do a fabulous, fabulous job. And I think are deserving all the accolades and all the, the great comments that you, you definitely earned every single one of them, my friend. So first off, I want to say that. Secondly, oh, wow. <laughs> it was very true. <laughs> and uh, and secondly, I mean, uh, when it comes to us, folks, you can follow Gold Standard on Twitter. We're at, at, at Oscars Gold or on Facebook where you can find us as Gold Standard, the Oscars podcast. Our podcast can be found on all major digital platforms and we certainly appreciate likes and follows on those. And also, if I, I may add, if you are of the Apple podcast persuasion, please consider giving us a five-star rating as that definitely helps grow our audience a great deal and get in touch with more like-minded movie lovers like Mike, for example. So uh, I guess that's, that pretty much covers it. Well, I appreciate uh, the compliments. I I get very awkward at the uh, sign outs of, of episodes, as my as uh, my listeners know for certain. And uh, yeah, you give me a compliment. It, that just freaks me out. I, I think my brain short circuited for a second there. So I don't know how to handle that. But all right. Praise, I'll, I'll... praise to the praiseworthy, my friend. Praise to the praiseworthy. <laughs> it's not getting better. I just <laughs> I get red in the face. when I Anyway, I'll do my social medias and we'll go from there. But we're, we're Mike, Mike and Oscar on Facebook, Instagram and and gmail we're at mm and oscar on twitter uh please you know like subscribe and rate uh slash review mike mike and oscar and gold standard the oscars podcast wherever you guys may listen those five star ratings you know the the thumbs up button the subscriber and all that stuff really helps us kind of grow organically and growing our platforms and everything so so, so please make sure you give nick uh, Zan and Rachel, those five-star clicks, and uh, that's that's a big uh, boon for both MMO and Gold Standard. And, and Nick, you got uh, Kramer versus Kramer up next, right? What, what's uh, you just 
charging right through, right? Every two weeks, the next best picture. Correct. Winner. And it's actually going to be rather interesting because this particular week, or should we say in two weeks time when we do Crane versus Crane, we're going to have a, yeah. an interesting guest co-host who's actually a fellow Montreal Canadiens fan of mine. I'm a huge fan of the Montreal <laughs> Canadiens. So it's great to finally have somebody to help me through the suffering that the Habs have had to go through during the, this latest NHL season. So that's great. And uh, yeah, I think it's going to make for a very interesting conversation. And I, as I added before, we're going to be doing also our goat and donkey segments. So we're interested to see who, what, who Rachel and Zan's yes. goat and donkey is of the 70s. In a former life, I had studied the screenplay for Kramer versus Kramer a lot. Let's just say I had to, I had to do a lot on that Ooh. one. Uh, so, yeah, I can't wait to listen to that episode. Uh, as for MMO, we got Top Gun Maverick. Mike and I are going to see that one together and talk about if it's a best pick picture contender or not, or if the box office will be the prize, as Nick and I were just talking about. Uh, we're going to do some box office over-unders, which is a fun segment I want to do with Mike. We're going to talk about, uh, Nick, we took our moms to see Downton Abbey, t- A New Era. Oh, and nice. It, it sounds adorable in principle. We didn't think it would go well, but it went extremely well it was a blast so uh, we'll we'll talk we'll tell you guys the story of mike mike and moms uh we'll also cover the heck out of all these spring film film festivals so congratulations to decision to leave broker triangle of sadness Lori uh and tokita all the winners at the Cannes film festival you get us talking about them in the next oscar race checkpoint and i'm going to tribeca so i'm really excited about that so our words of wisdom will be to follow gold standard the oscars podcast uh nick thanks again man uh for joining us i will thank you again so much it was a joy and a pleasure and uh mike you're definitely welcome back in the gold standard of the theater anytime got gotta do it I, I i need another uh hypnosis i need my fix uh so yeah invite me back we'll, we'll do it again thanks so much for listening everybody we'll see you next time bye